Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king. And God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. Of this man, man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him or understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God has promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As it is also written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated, and uh, please welcome Josh as, uh, as he makes his way up to the front. Andrew, right? I'll put it back. I'll try to remember to put it back. All right. All right. Well, good morning. 
you all just listened to the longest sermon in the book of Acts. So you might be wondering, are we done? But we're not yet. Um, it's good to be with you all. Uh, this is my first time being together at, uh, with you at Christ Community Church. Um, as Tim mentioned, uh, I've had a chance to get to know a lot of the residents who have come through our Deerfield campus, and many of whom have taken classes with me. Again, except for Andrew reminded me this morning, he sat in for one class and then immediately dropped it. So, <laughs> But he has a good excuse, so, you know, don't be, I'm sorry, I don't know you that well, and I'm throwing you under the bus right away, sorry. But he has, he has a good reason. Well, I want to begin by asking a question. What do you wish the world that we live in, live in right now, what do you wish it looked like? I know we don't know each other that well, and that's a pretty serious question to ask. But if we had a few minutes, and we were able to sit down together with one another, I'd be curious to hear, what would you say you would hope that the world that we look, live in right now, what would you hope for it? What would it look like? What would it not look like? I'm sure a lot of us would say, I, I wish the world that we lived in didn't have any more racism or sexism. I wish the world that we lived in, there was enough food for everyone. I wish that there was a good living wage paid to every single person that wanted a job. I wish that everybody had a chance to know the gospel of Jesus Christ. I asked this question of my two sons, and one of them said, Dad, I wish that there was no more anger in the world and peace for everyone. And I asked the other one, and he said, I just wish there was no more mosquitoes in the world that we lived in. <laughs> I, both of those are good answers, right? They're both here, and I'm not going to say which one said which. But. So whether it's, whether it's John Lennon that's based, singing a song wishing that there's no more greed or hunger or violence, or whether it's the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible that ends with a vision of God coming to be with his people and banishing all human sadness, tears, and death, all of us, most of us, seem to have this hope and this desire that there would be a world that is marked by goodness, by peace and justice, human flourishing for everyone. And our longings for peace, our longings for justice, we have a sense that they're deeply connected with the rulers, the leaders, the governors that are in positions of power over us. If you're like me, my Twitter, my Facebook feed is basically consumed, filled with people that are tweeting and putting up Facebook posts, basically motivated out of a criticism or praise, mostly criticism, but sometimes praise, for what our leaders are doing to lead this world into justice or peace or goodness for all people. Well, what does this have to do with the book of Acts? What is our longing for a good ruler that leads our world into justice and truth and righteousness? What does this have to do with the book of Acts and with the passage that we heard read this morning? Today, what we're going to do is we're going to look at Paul's first, and really it's his only sermon in the book of Acts in the synagogue. And the central theme of his sermon that we're going to see centers upon God and the way that he rules us through King Jesus, the one that we were just singing about in the last song as we sing about all praise to Christ our, our King. This is the central theme of Paul's sermon and the book of Acts. You could say it another way. Almost all of the book of Acts has to do with this. God promised that he would send a king, a ruler, to lead his people. And God has been faithful to this promise. And this righteous king that God has sent to rule and to save and to rescue us, he is present with us by means of his spirit. 
He's not gone away to only return thousands of years later, just waiting for us to sort of get our stuff together. He continues to rule his world and rule his church through his Holy Spirit. So let's break down Paul's sermon uh, into its three parts. I won't, read the pa- I won't read the passage again for you. But let's look at, are we gonna have, I don't know if we're going to have it on the slide, but let's look at the first section of the sermon. The first section of the sermon in verses 16 through 23, we see that God promises his people a king to save and to rescue them. Now, when you heard, you can be honest with me, I don't know if you do much congregational participation, but when you heard Tim read Paul's sermon, what were some of the, anything that sort of came to mind, things that you maybe were feeling as sort of you're hearing Tim read Paul's sermon or you're reading along in your own Bibles, anything come to mind? Some of you might have perhaps felt, you could be honest, right? It's really long, isn't it? It's kind of a long sermon. And it's also really Bible-ish too, isn't it? Right? We've got Samuel and Saul and David and going on to King David. And then there's all these Psalms that are being quoted. Psalm 2 and Psalm 16 and Isaiah 55. What is going on with all of this sort of Bible, you know, uh, uh, Bible text being quoted? And I don't know, maybe you could close your eyes. I won't, ask you. I, I won't ask you to raise your hands. Maybe a few of you thought, this is a little bit boring, right? I mean, what do all of these details of biblical history have to do with anything? Uh, all of those, right, are understandable responses to listening to Paul's sermon given 2,000 years ago. So what is Paul's point? Why all this biblical history talk? Let me try to make Paul's argument as clear as I can in sort of three stages. And as I do that, since we're 2,000 years removed from the text, I'll try to give you some cues for how Paul might expect you to feel. You can get in touch with some of your feelings and emotions. Sort of the highs and the lows that Paul would expect you to feel as he's giving this sermon in the synagogue. Paul's sermon begins by giving sort of a mini history of God's people. Verses 16 through 23 And the emphasis is on God. This is who God is and what God has done. God chose Israel to be his people. God compassionately led them out of the exodus. God gave them a land for their inheritance. He gave them judges and leaders and rulers. And then it gets to what is going to be his main point in verses 21 through 23. He starts to get to his main point when he says in verse 22, Now, and God has raised up David, the son of Jesse, to be a man after my own heart. He will carry out my will. The pinnacle of the argument then comes in verse 23 when he says, from this man's descendants, in other words, from King David's children, he promised God has now brought about his promised Savior to Israel, Jesus, the Messiah. Now, Let me get in touch with your emotions. This is the part in the sermon, Paul's sermon, where he'd be expecting you all to sort of get excited, anticipatory. Who did it? Yeah, right? You're getting giddy. You're joyful. You're saying, this is what we've been waiting and praying for. Some baseball fans in here. Any Kansas City Royals fans? A couple? All right. Sorry about that. I'm a Twins fan, but I'm going to contextualize my sermon, all right? So it's 2015 when the Royals won the World Series, right? Yes, okay. Any of you, sort of like the late winter or early spring, um, before the season has started, you kind of reading some articles, you're looking at the roster that the general manager has put together, and you say, 
I think this is going to be good. We've got Perez coming back at catcher, right? Hosmer's at first, right? What? Yeah, I know. The 2015, right? Moustakis at third, and Kane and Gordon in the outfield, and our bullpen's good, and our starting pitching's good. And those of you that are Kansas City Royals fans, right, and the season hasn't begun yet, how are you feeling at this point? Optimistic, right? We are ready for this thing to get going. We haven't won a single game. We don't know for sure if we're going to even make the playoffs, but right, we are anticipating with joy and an expectation that there is going to be something good that is coming. This is the same thing that God's people, well, maybe not exactly the same thing, right? But there's the same sort of feeling that God's people in the Old Testament are experiencing, all right, that Paul is tapping into in his sermon. I don't know if we have the, the uh, text up on board from the Old Testament. But God's people had been waiting for a king to come, to rule, to rescue, to save them, to lead them in justice and righteousness. He'd been exp- and they had been praying this. Their scriptures are filled with these prayers for an old te- for a, in, the, in the Old Testament for a king who would come. Let me just read to you a few. Let me just read to you my favorite, all right? So this is something that God's people would pray in Psalm 72. They would pray this. God, give your king justice and righteousness. Give righteousness to the son of the king. This king will judge your people with righteousness and your afflicted ones with truth and justice. He will vindicate the afflicted among the people. He will help the poor. He will crush those oppressors. He will rescue the poor that cry out to him. And the afflicted who have no helper, he will save them. He will have pity on the poor and the helpless, and he will save their lives. He will redeem them from oppression and violence, for their lives are precious in his sight. I hope you can hear in that one text, and I could, you know, for the sake of time, I won't read multiple of them, but there are multiple texts like these in the Old Testament where God's people are crying out, saying, God, we see these leaders that rule over us, and they exploit us, and they rule us for their own benefit, and they rule for their own power and money and privilege, and they give no voice They give no voice to the poor and the helpless, and they don't care, ultimately, at the end of the day, God, who you are when they rule. Throughout the Old Testament, God's people are going through these same longings, and they don't see it with their own eyes. They don't experience it, right, in their own uh, tangible day-to-day lives. They see violence instead of peace. They see idolatry and the worshiping of false gods instead of worshiping the one true God, and they see the powerful and the wealthy exploiting the poor. And they pray. They join their hearts saying, God, you promised David to give us a king. Make good on that prayer. So verses 16 through 23, first portion of the sermon, Paul is tapping into that sort of anticipation. Then we see what happens in the second movement where God's people reject their king in verses 26 through 29. What happens, right, when you try to mix oil and water? Or what happens when you mix a, uh, sorry about all the sports analogies, what happens when you mix Jayhawks and Wildcats, right? Toothpaste and orange juice. I would throw in a what happens when you mix KU and Mizzou, but they haven't been too relevant these days, right? So, sorry, Amber, my wife graduated from Mizzou. Sorry, I'm sorry, I'm so, I know there are many. Your days will come back, maybe, right? You mix these things and what happens, right? Often there's conflict. They don't go together. Sometimes, right, it can even be toxic, Well, when God sends his son, who's innocent and righteous and perfect and holy, 
to a world that is marked by injustice and idolatry and sin, what happens? It doesn't go too well. The world is unprepared. Even those people that had been praying for this king to come, when God sends his king, he doesn't look like what they expected he would look like. And as Paul says, the one who was sent to be their savior, the one who was sent to be the fulfillment of those promises for a good king in the Old Testament, they didn't recognize him, verse 27. They condemned him to death, the innocent, the righteous one. Even though there was nothing wicked within him, they put the one who was innocent to death. All of the world, Luke is very clear. Luke, who wrote his gospel in the book of Acts, wants to make the point that the entire world is culpable here. Herod, Pilate, Israel's leaders, all of them collaborate to say no to God's king. And while this ironically, ironically fulfills God's plan to rescue the world, it also exposes all of the world as unjust, broken, violent, unable to submit of their own accord to God's righteous and holy, peace-loving king. Now this, let me get back to the emotion, what you're supposed to be feeling in Paul's sermon. You might be able to guess. This is the point in Paul's sermon where you're supposed to feel devastation, utter tragedy, loss, even embarrassment and shame. The very thing that God's people had longed for and anticipated. They've said no to it. They've treated it like trash. I mean, it's hard for me to try to imagine the feelings that Paul's speech, at least what he wanted to produce, the feelings that Paul's speech would produce in his audience. I was trying to think of this. The situation reminds me of sort of those tragic irony that you can get in Greek tragedies or Shakespeare. Um, Spoiler alert, right, with Romeo and Juliet. You remember how it ends uh, with Juliet's death. She, um, uh, uh, well, actually, Romeo, remember, he ends up drinking the poison. He hears that these false rumors of Juliet's death, right? And it's tragic, but it's deeply ironic, right? Because uh, uh, at the same way, God's people must have been thinking, what have we done? The Davidic king that we prayed for, that has been sent now to God's people to deliver us and to lead us in justice and peace, we've destroyed him. We've handed him over to the Romans to be put on the cross. And we might think that this is the end of the story. It's over. God made promises. He fulfilled those promises. He sent the king. They killed his king. End of story. It's over. The world stands completely condemned in idolatry and injustice and evil and wickedness. But this is where we get to the highlight or the pinnacle of Paul's sermon. Third stage of the sermon in verses 30 through 39. Maybe the most important verse in Paul's sermon, maybe one of the most important verses in all of the book of Acts is very simply verse 30. But God raised him from the dead. Throughout Acts, there is this interplay. You acted wickedly. You condemned an an innocent and righteous man. But God, God raised him up from the dead. You killed God's son. In other words, humanity's no to God's provision of a savior is met not with, fine, you deserve evil. You deserve the violence and the idolatry that you make for yourselves in this world. Instead, humanity's no to its king is met instead with a yes by God. He is your king. And I will raise him from the dead and exalt him over you to establish this reality until you see it and you recognize it. This is the high point of Paul's sermon. 
This is the point where now you're starting to feel a little bit along the lines of excitement. Maybe there's a second chance, but wondering, are the implications for this still good when we were the ones who actually put him to death? Now, this is where Paul's sermon gets really complicated, so let me try to make it as clear as I can for you in verses 30 through 39. Paul draws upon all these Old Testament texts that are difficult for us to understand to try to make sense of what the resurrection of Christ is, what it actually means. So in verse 34, you can see in your text, right, Paul says, God fulfilled the promise that he made to us and to our children by raising up Jesus, just as it was written in the second psalm. You are my son. Today I have become your father. So what does this mean? What does it mean that God's resurrection of Jesus fulfills what was written in the second psalm? And why does it matter? Let me try, again, it's a bit complicated, but let me say this as clearly as I can. What's going on in Psalm 2 is a little drama. Drama goes like this in three parts. Part one, the kings, the rulers, the nations of the earth, they conspire against God and against his son and say, let us overthrow God. Let us destroy his son. Let us rage against God's holy temple. They're angry. They're violent. They want the rule. They want the power for themselves. And God, in stage two, verses six through eight, says, no thanks. That's not how it's going to work, right? Stage two, God says, no way. In fact, he laughs at the futility of the kingdoms of the world that are raging against him. Uh, He says, let me give you a decree. Listen up, everyone. I have put my king my son, on his throne, and he will rule the entire world. I have promised to give him the entire world as an inheritance for himself. So you can submit to him, or you cannot. The choice is yours. And this is what happens in part three. God warns the world, finally, and says, listen up. Give worship to my one and only king. Obey him. Kiss the feet of the son. If you don't, you will perish and be destroyed in your rebellion. Now, here's the point. When Paul says that God raised Jesus from the dead and that this fulfills those ancient words of Psalm 2, you are my son, today I have become your father, this is what he's saying. Paul is saying God has given his final no to the wicked, rebellion, violent rage of the kingdoms of the earth. And God has given his supreme yes to his righteous, innocent son, and has exalted him to a position of rule over his church. You can reject his rule if you want. You can continue to go in economic greed. You can continue in racism. You can continue in rejection of what he calls for. Or you can submit to his peace-loving, just rule. For those of us who welcome God's rule, God's resurrection of King Jesus from the dead, is meant to be good news. It is meant to be the point in the sermon where you are ultimately filled with recognition of your prior sin, but also with recognition of a desire to lovingly submit and obey and give your supreme allegiance to this one resurrected king. Right, so let me move on to the last point, point number four. So why is all of this important for Paul? Why does the sermon constantly emphasize David and kingship? And Jesus' resurrection. And what does all of this mean for Paul's audience and for us? When we confess Jesus from the dead, we are making a historical claim. 
right? We are making, uh, probably most of us understand this pretty well. This isn't the part that I'm that concerned that you understand, because I think you probably get it. When we say God raised Jesus from the dead, for example, on Easter Sunday, we are making a concrete historical claim about something that God did 2,000 years ago. But we are also making a claim about the present. We are also making a claim about reality as it exists and as we participate in reality in the here and now. If God raised Jesus, his son, from the dead and exalted him as king over the world 2,000 years ago, then when we say God raised him up from the dead, we are also saying King Jesus is active and alive and ruling the world. When Jesus is raised from the dead and goes up into heaven, you may remember this, the very beginning of Acts, right? And he ascends into heaven. He doesn't just go there to wait. He doesn't just go there to see if he can, we can sort of get our act together, and then he'll finally come back when he's ready. He goes there. He's physically absent, yes, and yet as the resurrected king, he is more powerfully present among us even now to advance and to establish his kingdom and his rule. So if we believe that Acts is true, if we believe that God raised Jesus from the dead and that he is actively now reigning and ruling over us as our king, then we ask ourselves questions like these. Are we committing ourselves now to believe and to live as if Christ is powerfully present among us and actively ruling our broken world? Right? When we sing these songs of worship and praise to Christ, we believe that that resurrected king is by means of his spirit present with us as we worship him and as we praise him. When we bemoan the state of our world, when we lament when we see the evil when we see injustice, when we look out at the world and it doesn't look the way that it's supposed to look, do we believe that God is still present and active to rule his church even in the midst of our pain and our suffering? Let me give you a few of the ways that in the book of Acts, King Jesus continues to rule his world. I, I would, I, I'm, probably a lot of this is sort of my professor sort of uh, understanding of this, but let me step out in just one second just in the book of Acts, right? This is what King Jesus does as he's exalted to heaven. These are things that he still continues to do in the book of Acts. What does he do in chapter two? Anyone remember? Pours out his spirit. The spirit that comes upon God's people at Pentecost is the spirit of the resurrected king, right? Luke is very clear. This is how the king still rules over you. He's, the spirit of the king has been given to God's people. What continues to happen? King Jesus heals people that are lame, right? Acts chapter 3. When the disciples pray and say to God, we are experiencing suffering and we need power and wisdom to proclaim your word, what does he do? He listens to their prayers, answers them, and gives them the Holy Spirit in Acts 4. When his, basically, enemy rages in violence against the church and tries to destroy it, what does God do? The resurrected king comes down from heaven and says, no, you're not going to do this anymore, Saul. And again, in a note of irony, the supreme enemy of the resurrected king becomes the major missionary in the book of Acts that establish, establishes Christianity throughout the ancient world. And maybe in the passage that you looked at last week, when Herod says, I think I'm going to destroy the church, God says, no, you're not, King Herod. In other words, throughout the book of Acts, Acts is primarily centered upon the way in which King Jesus is not absent but rules over his people and establishes the kingdom. 
So what does this mean for us? Let me conclude by giving you three things. What does this mean for us 2,000 years later as the people of God? Let me give to you three things. Number one, the defining feature of the church is that there is one ruler that we owe allegiance to or to whom we owe allegiance. One ruler. Almost, uh, almost all churches that I've been a part of probably need a little bit more of a robust understanding of the resurrection and what it means for sort of our current lives that we uh, now live in. The resurrection of Jesus, what does it mean? It means that Jesus is not absent, but Jesus is present to rule the world and to rule the church even now. I mean, this is my question for me. All, every, almost every morning I wake up, do I believe that the resurrected King Jesus is ruling and is in charge and is present in the world and in the church that I live in today? If so, then we should be anticipating, expectant, looking for ways in which the resurrected Christ is continuing to be present to make himself known amongst us. Right? When the early church shared the gospel with other people, they didn't do so thinking this is really horrible and hard work and how... They did so knowing that King Jesus was present among them to empower them to share the gospel with those who were lost and to share the gospel with the broken. When they prayed, they didn't think that their prayers were going as far as the ceiling. They believed that the prayers were ascending to the resurrected king that ruled the world. When they waited, they waited expectantly, looking for where God wanted them to take the gospel message into new places. Right, which is why the resurrected king is always surprising people as the gospel goes to an Ethiopian eunuch, as it goes to the enemy of God, Saul, as it goes to a pagan military man, Cornelius, as it continues to go to surprising people and the church realizes this is where the resurrected king is present. This is where he's at work. This is a call then, at least for me, but I think for all of us, often to move away from our laziness, our boredom, our apathy, to move away from thinking, I prayed a prayer 20 years ago, everything's okay, I've just got now the rest of my life to wait, I guess, to be asking questions like, where is the king at work? What is the resurrected king doing? How is he answering prayers? In what ways is he calling me and our church to embody and enact his rule of justice and peace and flourishing for all people? The witness of Acts from chapter 1 to chapter 28 highlighted in Paul's sermon is this. He is alive and he is present. And the question for us is, do we have eyes to see what he's doing and where where he's at work? Second, I want to encourage you, right, just like we are doing when when we sing these songs together or when we take communion, that our hopes, our longings, our dreams, our desires for a good ruler who works for peace and justice, they have been found supremely in Christ the King. This should call forth a a response of worship, thanksgiving of every day on our behalf to God. He has sent that King that we longed for. He has sent the one who has embodied our hopes for peace and equity and justice. In our own pursuits of peace and justice and human flourishing, sharing the gospel, whatever it may be, Right? We have the resurrected king as our supreme foundation, as the one who has already come. And then thirdly and finally, if there is one king to whom we owe allegiance, then this means that we as Christians have our own set of politics or our own set of practices that stem from who Christ the king actually is. 
I give this as a word of encouragement. Verses 37 through 39, we get the encouragement of what he has done for those who embrace him. Verses 40 and 41, we get a word of warning as well. So there's encouragement and warning here for us. The world has seen some pretty impressive empires, right? I mean, we don't live in this world anymore, but Babylon and Persia were pretty great. The Roman Empire, right, seemed like it was going to last forever as an eternal empire. The United States of America, we might think it's going to go on forever and forever, but we know it's not eternal. Empires are here today, and they are gone tomorrow. They rise and they fall, and that's okay. Because our hope is not in any empire, it's not in any nation state, it's not in any human political leader, right? It's in none of these things. And when we put our hope in these things as our supreme hope for God's way of redeeming and transforming the world, we often fail to make good on our understanding of who, how Christ, the resurrected king, wants us to act. This can often mean, sometimes very explicitly, right, that we place our hope in someone that's promising us, right, to lead us or to lead our people into the promised land. Now, to be clear, I'm not calling for a rejection of politics. St. Augustine said, uh, we belong to the city of God. Our true home is the city of God, but right now it's true. We participate in the city of man. But no nation state, no governor, no leader can function as our ultimate source of hope, joy, and comfort. And in fact, when we see the early church proclaiming there's one eternal king, you'll see in the next few weeks that it doesn't usually go over very well with the people that receive this message. Human leaders don't usually like to hear this kind of message, right? And the apostles are brought before, right, the governors and leaders saying, they're proclaiming things that we shouldn't be following. They're saying that there's one king, and it's not Caesar. So when we get straight our politics, when we get straight the practices that the resurrected Christ the King wants us to embody, this will not always mean that we find ourselves sort of at home with the way in which our world lives. It may mean we have to confront socially acceptable forms of idolatry that might water down our allegiance to Christ. So what does this common life of the church, what does the politics, I'm using the language of, the politics of the resurrected king look like? Let me just, you're going through the entire book of Acts, so some of you, if you've been paying attention to the sermons, might be able to say some of the things it looks like, right? It looks like a people that are filled by the Spirit of God. It looks like a people that are passionate to give testimony to others about Jesus Christ as God's supreme, crucified, and now resurrected king. It looks like people that are devoted to the prayer, prayer and devoted to the word of God. It looks like people that are devoted to sharing their resources with one another, looking for ways to say what God has given me is not my own. What God has given me and these resources are meant for God's people. It looks like people that are committed to hospitality, that are asking questions like, how can we bring the gospel to other people? Maybe not just to expect them to come into our own turf, but how can we bring the gospel to maybe people that are surprising? Maybe the people that we wouldn't expect, right? It looks like the church being a place of compassion, healing for the sick, care for the weak and the vulnerable, and we could go on and on. These are the practices that Christ the King in the book of Acts says will mark God's people. So our primary identity we are citizens of God's kingdom. Our king has come, praise God, the perfect embodiment of justice, 
compassion, peace, and flourishing. And we, the people of God at Christ Community and everywhere that call Jesus our resurrected king, are called upon to embody his peace and work against patterns of hatred and violence, seeking to embody his rule that he has already established. Again, because our resurrected king has come and has called us to participate in his kingdom, our constant task is to be reflecting upon who is this king, how is he making himself known, and in what ways are we as God's people called upon to embody and enact God's kingdom in our midst? Let me pray. Lord, we give you all praise and all worship that you have been faithful to the promises that you made centuries ago, that you made centuries ago to, your, your, uh, to King David, God, that you would send a righteous leader who would rule us. Lord, my prayer for us is that we would grow in our worship and our thanksgiving and our praise as we give glory and honor to you, God, for what you've done. But we pray also, Father, that you would show us ways in which your kingdom is present among us. You have brought your kingdom. Give us wisdom and eyes to see ways, Father, in which we can share in this and participate in this reality even today. In Jesus' name, amen.